I'd like you to imagine for a minute grabbing a hammer by the handle and pounding in a nail. You know how that hammer feels as you swing it? You can kind of feel that? You ever hit that nail and bend it? I've hit the nail and bent it. So then sometimes you can't fit that claw of the hammer in there to pull it back out, right? You have to use the pliers or you have to use a channel locks or a vice grips or something like that. What we're going to spend the time talking about over the next 50 minutes is another tool in the toolbox to pull that nail out. Now, what I'm talking about by that is when we migrate stuff, we're going to look at containers as a tool to do migration. It's certainly not needed to migrate .NET apps, and the traditional way works just fine, but it's another tool for your toolbox, and we're going to talk about the benefits uh, that containers can offer for those toolboxes in your toolbox for moving that. So my name is Brian Lewis. I'm a solutions architect with AWS. Uh, and with me, I have the luck of having Nikki Klein as my co-presenter. Hi, everyone. Hope you're having a great reInvent so far. I'm a technical evangelist for AWS. So if you're not familiar with the title, what that means is that they pay me to play with the cool stuff that they build and then show other people how cool it is. It's basically my job. Very cool. Oh, I should probably forward this slide. You don't have to. Oh, yeah. So what we're going to cover today um, is obviously the basics, so why containers for .NET applications, how to containerize your legacy .NET application, and then how to deploy it and get it running on ECS. Um, we're going to cover all of them, hopefully, in enough detail to get you started. And then if you have more questions at the end, we'll definitely take them. Oh, and just a pointer to the, to the gentleman in back, uh, our timer is not counting down, and I can talk forever if we don't start the timer. <laughs> just saying. All right. Okay, so I think it's important to talk about uh, where we've been, to talk about where we're going. So, is it not working? Nope. Cool. Oh, you have to push that button. I didn't pray to the demo gods today, so just giving you a heads up on that, that one. That could be a problem. I know. Um, so, this is a really awesome diagram because most people haven't seen it. Um, so, we're all familiar with .NET Framework 4.6, now we're on 4.7. Um, originally, when Microsoft was launching .NET Core, they were going to call it .NET Core 5. And that's to indicate that they really saw it as the next step in the .NET world. Um, they were going to move away from framework and go directly to core. Then, obviously, as you all know, they changed their minds at the last minute, and now it's 1.0, 2.0, 2.1, 3, so on. Um, I just think that this diagram is really cool because it shows that um, it, Microsoft sees .NET Core as the future of .NET. So most people are trying to migrate from framework to core. That's a really big hassle to do all that in one, one go. Um, so containers is another way that you can do it in pieces. Um, and we're going to talk a little bit about that at the end. So I, I did pull this and this graphic off of, it's uh, out on the net. It's Microsoft's graphic. Uh, and that's why I pulled it and used it. We didn't create that and put .NET Core 5, right? That was theirs. Uh, and then they changed. The other thing to think about as, as they go forward, right now we're on uh, .NET Framework 4.7. 4.7. Is it 4.7? Um, I thought it might have been a .1 after that now, but anyway. I don't even know. Um, and then uh, .NET Core 2.1. Uh, there's another .NET Core coming in this next year that is going to add forms and desktop. all kinds of desktop stuff. And it might make it easier for us to migrate our legacy apps by recompiling to Core, which would be really awesome. But We'll see when that ships, what, what happens there. Uh, where it exists today is uh, .NET Core apps. Um, 
and .NET Framework apps are very different, and so, uh, so you, we can't just recompile and get to that new platform. So that's why we have to look at uh, the 4.6 and 4.7 framework as we run all these things that we have in the enterprise that you know, either you've spent years writing or someone you, you, know, you purchased it from uh, wrote it, and it, it's, uh, it's why we have to live with it. So there is this common uh, perception that AWS does not love .NET. I'm very aware of this perception. So I just wanted to let you know that that's not true. And I specifically put this slide in here to let you know because these are all the recent announcements that we've made. This isn't even a complete list, but specifically for .NET developers, uh, we are spending lots of time in enhancing the tools um, and adding support to services that you don't currently have. And so I just wanted to make this known if you weren't aware of these announcements. Um, the best place to go to keep up with .NET news, specifically on AWS, is aws.amazon.com net. That was launched in July. Um, and it's also great for code samples, step-by-step -step guides, um, anything you could possibly need as a .NET developer on AWS, best place to go. And to jump onto that, uh, Nikki created uh, the .NET website uh, for AWS. Uh, and, and when I say that, she managed this whole thing to build this site. And I, is it uh, uh, aws.com slash? aws.amazon.com slash net. Slash net. And, and so there's all kinds of resources there, as well as uh, a spot to sign up for an email list to get information uh, forwarded to you when things change, because some people want to know when do the drivers change on the Windows images and all that other type of stuff. Yeah, you can spot. subscribe specifically to .NET News, so you don't have to get all of the AWS announcements. You can get the ones just related to Windows and .NET. Okay, and so when we look at Windows, to understand what uh, Microsoft's done here with the uh, containers, you know, Linux containers have been out for a while, Windows containers is a lot newer. Uh, what Microsoft did is in Server 2016, they built the infrastructure to put um, protections up between the different uh, applications and to, you know, when you call to look at the hard drive, it might hide sections of the hard drive, that kind of stuff. That's what containers basically do. Very similar to VMs, except they don't have the overhead of a VM. Now, in that, uh, we have Nano Server, which is the smallest copy of Windows that you can put out there. <laughs> Nano server um, is great for running containers. However, it doesn't work for us in this session today because it's great for running .NET Core. Uh, it does not work to run .NET traditional applications. Um, when we go to server core, that's what we have to use for this. There's, there's two other install options, and one is server core and one is full-blown server. Full-blown server has the, the full entire GUI, server core, has the graphical drivers and environment, but when you run the GUI, you get a command prompt box in the GUI. You don't get the start menu, you don't get the extra pieces there. Um, and so the difference there is uh, server core is somewhere around 12 gig, I think, um, and then uh, full-blown server somewhere around 20 gig. So, you know, it saves some space, but in comparison to if you want to run a Linux container, um, it's too big of an audience to ask you if anybody knows, because the guys in the back I'll never hear. But um, it's about, what, 64 megabytes for a Linux container, something around there? So quite a bit of difference. Uh, Nano server gets closer to that, um, but the, uh, the size is, is quite a bit different. We'll talk a bit about server core today as we look at this. Um, so Nano server, I already mentioned it. It's 64-bit uh, apps, .NET core only, um, and uh, it uh, uh, doesn't even, uh, with the latest version, we'll talk about versions in a second, uh, it's not even included with PowerShell by default. Now, server core is the one we're going to spend the time on today. 
Uh, it's got full PowerShell. It's got full-blown .NET support. It's got the ability to run SQL Server. It's got the ability to run pretty much anything uh, you know, other than RDP desktop type stuff. Uh, so it's, uh, it's great for you know, running your traditional apps. Now, when we look at sizes, um, let's talk a little bit about what the, uh, the sizes of the, of the OSs were. Server 2016 shipped initially, right? And uh, server core was about eight gigabytes in size from a download, and then it would expand and, and uh, be a little bit bigger as the install footprint on disk. Um, now, if you look at server 2016 version 1709, it's smaller. They dropped the size almost in half. And when you look at 1803, it's even smaller. And for those of you who aren't aware, this is Microsoft's new thing. They're shipping a new version of server. It looks like every twice a year. And so server 2016 is the main release. And then 1709 was the next release. The way that works, it's just like Windows 10. 1709 stands for 2017, and then 09 for September. And so the 1803 release was the 2018 release from March. And we just had a release of server 2019 in September uh, that is still kind of rolling out, so it's not fully released yet. Uh, but that is basically a uh, 1809 release of server but it's also gonna require new CALs and that stuff because they did change the server name as well, uh, where these ones all use the same CALs. So, um, one of the things to notice is they've really been working on the size of these things. They've been doing a lot of work in this uh, specifically for containers. Uh, that's got the most changes in these, in these new versions they've been doing. And so in 2019, there's a ton of changes. And as soon as that is really widely available, anybody who's doing Windows containers will most likely move to that because it's, there's some huge, huge improvements and goodness there. So why containers? Uh, well, these are, these are three really good reasons. Uh, you can really take advantage of your operating system, um, deployment runtime consistency. If you can't see my shirt, uh, works on my machine. How many people have said hey, wait, that? Let me see. I've said that. Works on my machine. Scaling. So we're going to cover these a little bit more, but this is just an overview of, of why containers for legacy.net apps. So that's a dev machine, right? I mean, it's, it's a dev thing, right? That's the ops thing. So I don't know if, if we covered that. We'll specifically cover it. Don't we have a part where we go? All right, so I'll drop it till later. Um, so why containers for legacy apps? If you think about it, the hypervisor, right, did a great job of letting us start to use the hardware fully. Things would sit and run at 5, 10, 15, 20% utilization. We've got a lot more server there, so we virtualized. And then we got some other great abilities with that, which is we could spin up new servers as long as we had more space in the, in the uh, uh, hypervisor cluster, whatever we were running. Um, but there are some limitations there in the sense that in the cloud, I'm already on a virtual machine. And a hypervisor on top of a hypervisor uh, really is very poor performance. There are some out there that, do, that can work in that fashion. But if you've ever run it, it significantly slows down the machines. It's not ready for production uh, to do that kind of work. But what does work really well is to do a, uh, a container. Because what a container does is instead of building a whole new machine and emulating that, it runs on the same Windows kernel or the same uh, kernel for the Linux side as well. And then what it does as far as the containers, they run secluded from each other and they can't see each other. And so, but they share the kernel. So it, it basically lets you on the same piece of hardware, if I was to do containers, and maybe I can run 100 apps on there. 
uh, in virtual machines, I might do 10 or 20 apps, right? It's, it's a lot lighter weight. Uh, the processing power is, is, is really, uh, it runs like it's native on the machine. And so there's some really great benefits to being able to fully utilize, especially in the cloud, because our instances are already virtual machined. So if I want to load those up and fully utilize them, uh, the containers is a great tool to do that. So that process is, uh, the way it does work, the kernel is the same across all of them. Uh, but in each container, all the above processes uh, get added in. So um, they don't share any other processes other than the kernel. When we look at that, um, I guess I should go back. When we look at that, it works really well in the cloud that we have a hypervisor, then we have server 2016 or Linux, and then we have the Docker containers up on top of that. And that's what we would uh, suggest doing because when I migrate these apps in, I can really uh, scale them up. And we'll talk more about that scale in a second. You can also decrease your Windows licensing costs for anyone that's concerned. Um, if you care about that kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, if you care about that kind of thing. Deployment runtime consistency. So we touched on this briefly, but um, basically if the image is running on dev, test, and prod, you're going to have the exact same experience um, no matter where you run it. Uh, usually when you have problems like it works on my machine, it's usually a dependency issue. Um, in this case, all the dependencies are contained within the uh, image, um, so you get the same experience across the board, which is great because you rarely now hear developers say it works on my machine. Now notice I'm not wearing a shirt that says it works on my machine because I'm the ops guy. Nikki's the coding uh, guy. So Dev ops. Yeah. He hates me. Secret. You know what? Not anymore. <clears throat> not anymore with containers. Oh, you like me now? Yeah. This is yeah. new. So then we can talk about uh, cowboy coding, was it? Oh, right. So how many people have ever tried to fix a bug in production? OK, right. So uh, this is formerly known as cowboy coding uh, from one of the places that I worked. And so uh, yeah, hopefully you will not have to do this if you're using containers ever again. Um, because it, again, deployment, runtime, consistency across all your environments. So no more fixing bugs in production. The process that their company used was phenomenal when I heard about it. They had a cowboy hat, a nice, I don't know, 10-gallon cowboy hat. And so what happened when you would code and fix production workloads, you know, the people coming by to talk to you about what happened on Seinfeld. No, or, don't or, talk to me. I got the cowboy right? hat on. I'm the hat goes on. Everybody knows not to bother you, which I thought was a fantastic process. So this is what a Docker file looks like if you've never seen one before. And what's interesting is that each line of the Docker file actually becomes a layer in the Docker image. Hit the next. Yeah, there you go. Um, and so then that's how you actually create the immutable image. And then the immutable image then becomes the image at the base of your container. And then there's a read-write layer on top of it. Um, the benefits of this is that obviously you can reuse your image for multiple applications. So you can create one image and just reuse it a million different times for all the apps that are running some of the same things. Um, so like in this slide, for example, I, have, I made one image and now I have two applications that are using that same image. So obviously so Dockerfile, uh, you only write one Dockerfile, so a lot of code reuse. You don't have to keep rewriting the same stuff. So to really get this idea through, uh, think about running uh, 100 apps on the server. Now, they're not all the same app. In this slide, it looks like they're exactly the same app. But these could be different .NET apps. And what we load that's the same is that uh, Windows Server Core, you know, that download, it was 7 gig, right? 
So that's downloaded once, and then all the apps all refer to that same one download, because it's immutable, it doesn't change then after that. And then they build their layer on top of that. And so when you think about that, if I've got 100 apps on this server, in the traditional world of virtual machines, uh, that would be 700 gigabytes that, of disk space that that would use. And in Docker, it will use seven gigabytes. So huge savings in disk space. And I know, you know disk is cheap, but it, you know, if, if you think about, um, you know, in comparison to Linux containers, right, they're small, so they come down a lot faster when I go in and add them to a machine. But if I've already got the server core preloaded on that machine, then I just have to load the differences, you know, whether it's IIS that's built on top of there or whether it's just my .NET uh, code, my specific 50 megabytes, 100 megabytes, or however big your app is, then that's the top layer, and that's all you have to download then. So it makes, um, it makes these images competitive in speed after you put that base layer on there uh, to the brethren in the Linux side. Uh, so it's really, really impressive that uh, uh, this containerization uh, layering of file systems. You know, we could do this in, in virtualization or in other things, and, and we just, no, nobody seems to have gotten around to doing that. Uh, so there's nothing special with containerization for here except that uh, that's how it's done. Oh, is this my slide? Mm -hmm. So the benefits of Windows containers. Uh, so we just one, covered a couple of them. One of the reasons that this whole session came about is when we put things in containers on premises, it makes it real simple to move these servers around. So as far as moving to the cloud and moving back out of the cloud and moving to someone else's cloud, all of that is very simple then because it's all running on top of that container abstraction layer. Uh, so it's, it's simple. If you're uh, lifting and shifting into containers, um, it's easy to continue modernizing your application. Instead of trying to modernize it before you move to the cloud, you can lift and shift into containers and then continue modernizing on top of that by, by breaking out pieces of your application into containers that maybe you write in .NET Core. So another, another benefit, we already talked about how we can put lots of them on the same machine so we can lower the costs because you're gonna fully utilize that piece of hardware or that, that virtual machine. Um, another thing is that uh, you know, the server boot times since we're not really restarting a server, if you think about your server boot time, when you hit the hardware button on your on-premises server, you know, it's ridiculous, especially if you have to count all the RAM on the server, right? It, it takes, you know, five minutes, even more sometimes, to boot your server. Um, when we go to virtualization, it's a little bit better, and it's only taking a minute or so to boot your server. Uh, in containers, it's sub one second, which is really nice, especially because if we're doing things and we have a, a server fail, right, you're, you know, due to the crappy code, uh, technical term. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It is not crappy. But if, the, if the, for some reason there's a problem where the code actually drops and not the hardware, um, that there's services that watch for that, and, and we'll talk more about those, and restarts it. If the server's down for less than a second, the end users really see it as a glitch, and they see glitches all the time, so they don't really think it was down and we won't tell them it was down. So, you know, that one second boot time is kind of nice. So uh, we are gonna use Nerd Dinner for our demonstration. Um, if you're not familiar with this, Scott Hanselman built this application way back when, they when Microsoft released uh, MVC 1.0, and he's continued to update it all the way to 4.5, which is now considered legacy. 
Um, so we are going to use Nerd Dinner um, running .NET Framework 4.5, and we're going to containerize that today. If you want to grab the code. Oh, yeah. Uh, it's on GitHub. It's on my GitHub. Um, all of the directions and all of the, uh, basically, uh, commands I'm going to write today are in a markdown file called directions inside the repo, so you can replicate everything we did today. Except we didn't sacrifice any chickens, so it may be difficult to replicate any failures we have today, but we'll see. Again. Oh. you got to get your machine on, and then you can do it. First failure, the machine turned off. It's fine. Again, I told you I didn't pray to the demo god, so we already have that going for us. OK, so this is Nerd Dinner. This is a .NET framework application. So you can see there's a web config. Um, all the good stuff is in here. And at the root of my project, there is a folder called DB, and inside contains the Docker file that I wrote to containerize a SQL database, which is part of our application, um, along with a PowerShell script. And then in the web folder is a Docker file to containerize the actual application. So let's take a look at that for a second. So all we're doing here, let me hide that terminal for a second. By the way, let me step back for a second. I'm using Visual Studio Code because Visual Studio and I have officially divorced um, because it runs right over me as I'm trying to write my Docker file. I don't know if you've ever experienced uh, adding Docker support to your uh, Visual Studio IDE, but for me, as soon as I save the Docker file, it just starts trying to build it, and I'm not ready for that yet. So in order to make sure that this demo happens at uh, my pace, we're using Visual Studio Code, um, which is actually now what I use all the time now. Visual Studio went out the window, fortunately. Um, so back to the Docker file. So if you look at the first uh, statement, it says from Microsoft.NET Framework. So I'm actually using a Microsoft-based image here. And the cool thing is Microsoft actually uh, releases a ton of images for all their versions of .NET Framework, .NET Core. I think .NET Framework goes all the way back to 3.5, if you're curious. Um, and then .NET Core, they've released every single version. So you can use one of their base images as a starting point to uh, build your application. So this Docker file is a multi-stage Docker file. And the reason that it's a multi-stage Docker file is because what I do in the first part is I actually build the application. So you see the last line, it says run ms build. Um, I copy over the files, I run NuGet restore, and then I run ms build. And then I throw away this container. I no longer need it anymore. And then I uh, copy over the DLLs to the um, image that I would like to run my application on, which is now Windows Server Core. I just got done talking about it. So basically, why I do this is because none of the source code is on that final image, and I don't want it to be there, because I want my image to be the smallest humanly possible, as we talked about. Um, so, and there's no need for the source code to be there. I just need the DLLs. So that's all that's going with me. But raises security doing that as well. Yeah, also that's a security issue, so you wouldn't want to do that. Um, so we're going to actually build this image right now. So the command, if you're not familiar, is dockage, docker image build. And then we're going to give it a parameter of dash f. We're going to tell it where to find our Docker file. If your Docker file is sitting at the root of your project, you do not need to do this. But again, my Docker files are in two different folders. So it's very easy to find which one is which. 
Um, so dash F, and then I'm gonna give it a tag, so I can find it later, of nerd dinner slash web, and then I'm gonna put the period on there to indicate that um, this is where I wanted to start building from. If you forget that period, you'll cry. Trust me, I've done it a lot of times. Um, so yeah, it's successfully built, um, and that's basically how you build the app image. So now we only have the app image built, we do not have the database built, and we need both images to run this application. Okay. Um, I was just gonna throw in two thoughts here. One was, uh, she mentioned that this is Visual Studio Code. Uh, a lot of the videos and stuff, if you watch and go to Microsoft's website, they're using code now and, and not full-blown Visual Studio. Certainly here, it was kind of funny as Nikki started to go down the path sure. of using Visual Studio and manually edit her Docker file so she could demo it and clean it up and show it to you guys. Visual Studio doesn't like you manually editing it. It wants to control it all yourself. And so it, really it wants was all rather the power. hilarious to watch. I really feet. needed the granular control for the purposes of this demonstration in case I changed anything live in the Docker file. Um, or it just like it just starts going like before I'm even like ready for it to go. So there's no typing a command in Visual Studio. There's just it goes. And it does some kind of like magic in the background. It's like typical Visual Studio fashion. I have no idea what magic it's doing, but I'm not. I'm not a fan, so. Okay, and so um, SQL Server is, uh, we're gonna have that run in a container as well here. You don't have to, you could use, you could hit uh, some other, you know, as we talked about the toolbox before, we could use another players or whatever, we could use RDS, we could use just an EC2 instance, uh, we could run it on premises or somewhere else. Uh, but if we wanna put it in the container, that does make it easy and lets us do this uh, immutable image pipeline work and there's only certain ways to get it. And that way is to do a Docker pull, Microsoft slash Microsoft SQL Server Windows. You basically pull it out of a repository, um, the Docker repository. Now we didn't talk much about the repository, uh, but one of the things, not only do we build the files in these image layers, but then when you have that image, you put it into this file share called a repository, a Docker repository. Docker has one that's, you can, put your files into. Um, we have one. We have one, we have it in your account. Uh, there are- ECR. Yep, ECR. There's, there's other uh, repositories out there, but the repositories are really cool in the sense that that's where those images are c contained. When you build it on your laptop or in your dev machine, then you push it to there, and when you wanna pull it off of there, you just pull it from there. And, and that's a huge piece of what Docker does. Um, the only legal way to get SQL Server is to pull the images uh, that are pre-built for you. Even though you could load, grab a Windows image and then you know, basically do an interactive command prompt in there and then go install SQL, that is uh, licensing not allowed, uh, although I'm not an attorney, but I believe that uh, that is how I inferred it. Um, use at your own risk. Uh, but uh, th this is what they, their website says is, is how, to, how to get it. And they do have both uh, SQL Server on Linux as well as on Windows. It's actually harder to find the Windows ones for, for uh, Docker than it is for the Linux ones because you know, most people doing Docker are doing Linux. Uh, which brings us to the, the data. You probably want to keep your data. Probably. So Maybe. When I put my data, you know, we talked about these, uh, we've got this, this file stack of our app and, and OS and all that stuff. If I've got SQL there, and I save my stuff to that uh, server, and then the idea is that these servers, we can throw them away, I would just throw away my data. 
which is probably not a good idea, or before I killed that server, I would have to upload it to a repository, which that is not the way to do it. So the way to do it is to use uh, data volumes, to use a file share, uh, to use a mounted uh, host directory. Now, the caveats there are today, um, you can use uh, data volume containers on either Windows or Linux. On Windows, you can use an SMB 3.2 file share for your SQL Server database backend, uh, but you can't do that with Linux because Linux doesn't support the 3.2 protocol. We have one thing over them. Um, and then as far as uh, mounting the host directory as part of the file system, you can do that today on Linux, but you can't do that on Windows. Now, a lot of that changes with Server 2019, and when we get Server 2019 fully uh, incorporated, that does let you do the data volumes, that does do a lot of other stuff uh, for containers. Um, and, and so it, it, it would just be a month or so, I think, before we, we get uh, full 2019 everywhere that, uh, and everybody doing Windows containers, I'm pretty sure will jump up to that uh, uh, version when, it, when it's uh, fully available. Yeah, we didn't do any of our uh, stuff using Windows uh, Server 2019, uh, but I highly suggest that you check it out after this presentation because it does um, add a lot of functionality back to Windows containers that was previously missing that Linux containers had. Okay, so now we need to containerize our database. We're back. All right, so let's go to our database folder. So I have two things in here. I have a Docker file, I have a PowerShell script, and I have a Bach file. All I'm doing in the PowerShell script is just restoring the database from the Bach file to get my data in there. And can I inject uh, what a Bach file is? That's a developer way of saying the backup file that SQL Server creates. <laughs> Sorry. That's what, our, that's what we in the ops world call it. Got it. We have different vocabulary, so. A little bit. Um, so, this Docker file should look fairly similar to the other one. Um, again, I'm using one of Microsoft's base images. Uh, I'm using Microsoft uh, SQL Server Windows Expressed. And then um, I'm explicitly stating that I'd like to use PowerShell as my shell, um, <clears throat> exposing the port, 1433, copying over the Bach file or the backup file, however you want to say it. And then um, at the end, this command uh, is just telling the image that right when the container starts up, I want the PowerShell script to run, first thing. So you can also use entry point here or command. They do a little bit different things, but for the purposes of what we're doing, we're gonna use command CMD. Um, and then, let's see, well, I'll show you the PowerShell script really fast if you're curious. All I'm doing is, again, just restoring from that Bach file. Um, yeah, that's basically it. So let's build our database image. Let me get some more real estate in here. So I'm gonna go into the database folder and I'm gonna do docker image build. Same command, we're starting to get it now. Um, I don't actually have to do this, I'm just doing this because it's good practice and it helps you guys figure out what this parameter is doing. Again, it's telling uh, docker where to find the docker file. Um, then this is the tag, so nerd dinner slash db, and then again the period because I want it right here. Done. That's what happens when you have things cached in your machine. It happens so fast. <laughs> so let's actually run this now. So I have a Docker Compose file that I use to run both of these containers at the same time on one network. So this is my Docker Compose file that I wrote. 
So you can see that it's referring to both image tags, so these are the ones that I tagged it. Um, all it's doing is it's creating a network called AppNet, which is a NAT network. It's telling both uh, containers to use that network. This is a really important thing that uh, Brian and I had fun with. You have to accept the EULA. If you don't accept the EULA, your container will just immediately tank. Fun times. It doesn't just tank. It just turns off, and then you have to troubleshoot why your container it just won't goes start. goodbye. Like starts up and then down. Uh, yeah. So ports. It's all. It's all that's in here. Nothing. Nothing fancy. But again, it's all in GitHub if you want to look at it. So we're just going to do Docker Compose to actually run this. I wonder if that's enforceable in court. What? That you hit Y on the. Uh, on the Docker file here, on the Docker Compose file. You just agreed to the EULA by well, doing that in code, but there's no, you know. Well, it's an environment variable. I know, but what I'm saying is I wonder if they can prosecute you in court because you accepted the EULA. It just seems kind of silly. Although so does the website. I don't know. That. All right, not a lawyer. bad tangent. Okay, so Docker Compose is, uh, again, dash F, tell it where to find my Docker Compose file. It's a YAML file. And then I just call up dash D. Then it's gonna start up my containers. Um, so we're gonna touch on one of the benefits of running containers in Windows Server 2019. Um, because we're not doing that, we actually have to find the IP address to actually open this up locally in our browser, which I'm gonna do in a second here. But if you are already using Windows uh, Server 2019, you no longer have to do this. You can just use localhost and the port. Uh, which is a really nice enhancement for Windows Server 2019 um, because this is really lame to have to like find the IP address every time. This is the main reason that the Linux ops guys are laughing at the Windows ops guys in the container space. Right. I'm sure they'll find new reasons too in the future, but right now it's because they just go to localhost all the time and we have to look up the IP address. But again, that changes in about a month or as soon as you get 2019 loaded. It's this long command that I can never remember because it's long and ugly. Or you could do ipconfig for the ops guy. Or you can there. do it that way, either way. You um, can do it in code, or you can just use ipconfig. One or the other, ops guy, dev. Let's go back to that for a second. Remember who you are. <laughs> I do it this way, he does it a different way. We accomplish the same goal. Because we're friends, and we work together. That's right. So it's taking a second. It's just starting up both containers. And then we're just gonna we're just gonna view it in the browser really fast to see if it worked. Everybody, cross your fingers and toes. I don't know why it's taking so long. To fill time, another thing that takes really long um, that uh, is interesting is when you upload your um, once you build these and you want to upload your image to the, re the repository, that upload takes a real long time because it runs through and, and compresses it a lot, and so. When you upload and push, that takes a lot of time. When you download, downloads are pretty quick. Um, what we decided, we're definitely not doing any demos of uploads. Because one of your uploads, didn't that take uh, hours? <laughs> yes. Yeah. And it downloaded in maybe 15 minutes. Even that, we're not going to look. But I'll show I you just, some like, downloads. I started it, and then I decided that I no longer could wait for it, and I went to bed to give you all an idea of how long it took. Um, yeah, it does, it does take longer because it's compressing it as it uploads it, which is a nice feature for somebody that's pulling it down, but not for me. Oh, and on this machine, Dude, it would take forever on this machine. what the fuck is she, happening? Her, her last machine she had in the airplane, 
and had it on the floor. Bad idea number one. Okay, it was in my backpack, just, just to set, tell you. And then the gentleman who sat next to her spilt coffee onto the said floor. It was a pink drink. Okay, a pink drink, sorry, not coffee. Uh, and it didn't say anything. So the machine basked in that all, all the all entire flight. And uh, it, was a, it was a nice Lenovo carbon. I'm just gonna try running. Uh, and it killed it, along with all of the work that she had to recreate for this uh, presentation. Yeah, so I had to rewrite it. I wrote it twice. But now they cool. gave her another machine that is really ridiculously slow, slow. which is why we're having these, uh, these issues. I had a Lenovo Carbon X1, and now I have some kind of random HP that's a piece of crap, so. Not that there's anything wrong with HP. We do want to make sure that we state that. <clears throat> well, I'm having an issue with it. This specific model is just a little bit too slow for a dev to machine. This. I don't know why it's not. It's deciding to be exceptionally slow at the minute. I ran this like a few hours ago in our chalk talk. It worked perfectly fine. It no longer wants to go. Maybe it's because I, I loaded that browser session and that RDP session, which uh, no, that can't all your be resources. It. Oh, you're right. You're taking up all of my, all of my RAM. By running Firefox and the RDP client. A small amount of RAM. Okay, yeah, we should uh, abort this mission. Right. It does work, I promise you. If you download it from GitHub and run it, it will work. I'll show it working, because what she's done then is she's taken this stuff and she's pushed it to a repository in, in traditional in ECR. fashion, I handed it and off to ops. In my demo, I'm going to pull it down from there and then run it on an uh, EC2 instance, and then later I'll run it in basically a, a cluster, a, 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 basically a container cluster, uh, and we'll see all that. Okay, so... Uh, I back. didn't know you were pushing the button. Sorry. What we just did um, is all in this little nice diagram. Step four we didn't get to because, as we said, it takes a very long time, and we do not have all day. I'm sure you guys all have places to be. Um, so we obviously built it, tested it. I did step one for you way before. Um, we had a Docker file. We ran our Docker file. Docker file built our application and then put the DLLs in a final container. We built our SQL server container image um, and we copied over a PowerShell script that would allow it to copy the Bach over which uh, restores the database right when the container starts up. And then we would push both of our images up to Amazon ECR. You do not have to push them to ECR. Um, you can also push them to Docker Hub. Like, I, choose wherever you want to pick. Um, it doesn't really matter to me. And that, because you can run your containers um, still on AWS, even if your images are in Docker Hub. Or any other container registry, for that matter, that's on the internet. Um, and then the other thing I think uh, might be good to point out is we're doing the restore from that uh, backup file. Um, the reason we're doing that is it makes us a very self-contained environment that is easy to demo and other people can take it and you guys can play with it and it works great without having to go set up other stuff. Right. In production, we would never do that. We would have right. a SQL server database somewhere, right? And we wouldn't be doing restores. We would just continually have that database running. Um, but that's, that's what we have set up. Um, so this goes back to the best practices of using a multi-stage Docker file. Um, we, I think we talked about the benefits, but basically it will help you make your image the smallest amount possible, and you leave the source code behind and just continue on with the DLLs. So Windows That's containers, 
All right. Did you pray to the demo gods? I did not. I told you, like, that was exactly what just happened. All right, let's see. Let's switch over to your machine. It's not asleep yet. That's a good start. Um, it's, it's thinking. It's still I'm starting. a really hard time with a lot of things. All right, so I'm going to go into an RDP instance here. I'm, I'm remoted into a server of mine. Uh, this server is just an EC2 server in US East 1. And uh, in this server, I have... Um, He's pulled down my images. Let's go with... Uh, I'm going to run the ISE. This is on your machine. Why is this doing that? Oh, because I can't see my start menu. Your start menu is not hiding. I'm going to tell your start menu to hide. Okay. I can find it. I knew we should have prayed to the demo gods. All right. Like, I was I'm really serious this. about that one. How do I hide? I'm going to move it to the side then. How's that? Does that work? No. Sure. Would have been better to have my machine up here. All right. Yeah. Where's the lock? What? There it is, locked. All right, thank you. All right, let's do that. Let's do that. That'll be quick. All right, that is what I expected to see. All right. Whew. Ooh, Zaz are welcome. That's the best demo yet. All right, so what we do first, you know, once we have Docker installed um, on, on the Windows server, is we run a Docker pull command. And if we look at this here, let me uh, zoom in a little bit. Uh, if we look at this here, I do Docker pull. I'm sorry? Oh, I thought someone commented. So I'm doing a Docker pull, and then I'm basically pulling from ECR, which is 805, you know, that number, uh, basically .amazon.com slash nerddinnerdb. So the first thing I'm pulling is the DB. And if I run on that one, Let's go. So what it says is it's not pulling it down. It already pulled it down. And that digest is the same, basically the hash. It's the same file. It knows it has the latest files because she hasn't pushed anything new up there. Uh, so that's done already. If I do a Docker pull on the other image, uh, which I've already done as well, it should say the same thing. It's pulling. Oh, it's the same. We're all good to go. And then I, I have a choice. I can run it manually and do a Docker run and basically you know, call those items. Another option is to use a Docker Compose file. And it's really nice because it ties the network together, ties the machines together right away and sets it up so it's easy. I'll show you what that looks like. I'll bring up uh, Visual Studio Code. And I have the Compose file in there. I've converted everyone. It's, it's basically the same Compose file that I want to make it using. a little bigger. Yep. Let's go. Yeah. So if we look at this compose file, uh, what I have is I have the image. And if you remember seeing this before in, in her Docker compose file, she just had the name uh, nerddinnerdb on image because it was on her local machine. But this one's up in a repository. So it's got this unique number of the storage space. And then it's got the tag that this is the web. Right? So it's going to start the web server here. And it's going to map the ports. It's going to go to port 8020. Uh, that's going to be on my machine. And port 80 is going to be the one running in the, in the container. And it's going to remap that. Um, and then I've got, uh, it says it depends on the nerd uh, dinner DB, which is the other uh, image. And it's going to join this app net network. 
That depends on just means that the DB container is going to start first. And, and we certainly want the database up first, right? Because the app is going to try to connect to that. So then we've got the uh, image here that's exact same thing. We do have the accept EULA added into there. We've got port 1433 mapped, and it's on that network. And then it's using NAT, which NAT is the only networking type allowed in Windows Server 2016 for Docker containers. That changes in 2019, but right now NAT is the only network you can use. And so that's, that's my compose file. And so when we execute that, that will start with a docker compose dash f, that docker compose file, See if bring it up. you can get it to go. What do you mean, if? Now, so the red, the red is due to that I'm, I'm in the ISE. If I was in a PowerShell window, we wouldn't see that. For some reason, the ISE PowerShell window has a problem with Docker commands, uh, but it'll still function. Okay, it's running. And we'll see that it's up and running. All right. How did you get that running? Ops, guys. That's how it works. All right, so now I'm going to do a Docker PS for a process list, uh, and we're going to see if it's up and running. Uh, and both of them are, which is good, because when we didn't have that Y in there, it would shut down automatically, and we wouldn't, we'd only have one of them up and running. So we see it's up for 17 seconds and 26 seconds. It did start the DB first, and then the web, just like we told it to in the compose file. And the next part All right, let's see it. is to hit it. So we'll use a lovely browser here. And it will take a little bit because it is .NET uh, Trish framework. And there we go. It's up and running. It doesn't have Scott Hanselman's fancy and that's design, but same app. What a great app. <laughs> but there we have it. From an ops perspective, all we did is have to pull it down from the registry, right? Whatever the, de the developers built for us, we just pull and it runs and it works. So he could run, we're showing this in an EC2 instance because he could actually run this as a test first before he deploys it to ECS. So maybe he pulls it down into an EC2 instance and that's his test environment. And then he later on from the test deploys it to ECS. Yep, and so the, the way I could do, I mean, there's multiple ways you could do it and you can certainly do it in code pipeline. Yeah, you could use code uh, pipeline. There's another thing we could do, which is I test it here, it works. I push it to my repository. That's the production repository. And then we can have it automatically load from our automation engine. Uh, whenever the, the repository changes, just pull the new images and, and basically drain the old ones and start the new ones. All right. Back. Back. OK, so these are some of our latest announcements for ECS for Windows Server. Actually, these are from the end of last year. So pay attention the rest of this week. We might see some more announcements for ECS for Windows. I have no idea what they are, so don't ask me. <laughs> I literally have no idea. I think the coolest shout out from the last year's announcements would be the, uh, that the ECS agent now runs as a native Windows service. So we just wanted to highlight that you know, the ECS team is working on improvements for Windows Server on ECS. So we're going to take a, a, a quick video to look at a little bit about ECS. If you're unfamiliar. Um, and then uh, we'll continue after that. So, let's, or we won't. How do we start this video? Press space. Space. Let's start. Using Docker containers means that you can abstract away the software, operating system, and hardware configuration from your app and have a standard building block that you can run anywhere. 
But when you start deploying lots of these containers for lots of applications, managing all of these container clusters starts to get complicated pretty fast. Wouldn't it be nice if you could just focus on building containerized apps and leave the container deployment and scheduling and cluster configuration and management to a service that manages all of this? Introducing Amazon EC2 Container Service. Amazon EC2 Container Service is a highly scalable, high-performance container management service that allows you to run and manage distributed applications. EC2 Container Service allows you to schedule, launch, and run Docker containers across a cluster of Amazon EC2 instances using a simple set of APIs. You can build and package applications into containers with Docker, and then seamlessly deploy the applications into production with EC2 Container Service. EC2 Container Service manages a cluster of Amazon EC2 instances for you and takes care of the state of your cluster, as well as scheduling, running, and monitoring containers across your cluster. EC2 Container Service schedules containers to help find the optimal placement based on your CPU and memory needs. Okay, so ECS um, is basically our container service that we shipped. We also have a couple others. We have EKS for Elastic Kubernetes Container Service. Uh, we also have Fargate, which is ECS, where you don't uh, host your own virtual machines and manage those beneath it. They run on our VMs, and so you only have to pay for the container. Less ops work, my fave. <laughs> less ops work and less cost, which is, is closer to the serverless type model for uh, cost, which is really nice. Um, so there's multiple offerings here, and other customers are actually using a full-blown Kubernetes install on, on their EC2 instances. So there's lots of options. Some people use Docker Swarm. These are all tools that are going to manage our containers for us. We're going to focus in just on ECS for the rest of this. For one, it's the only service that fully supports Windows uh, for containers now. for now. Um, it's in beta in Kubernetes. And so when Kubernetes fully supports that, that will then move into uh, EKS as well as the Kubernetes that you run yourself. Um, and so anyway, uh, when we look at ECS on server 20 or for server 2016, the first thing we do is we build a cluster, a cluster of uh, virtual machines. Once it builds out that cluster, then we can start to build tasks that run on that cluster. And so it basically builds up the instances and has them all configured to work together. And then you create a task definition. And that's the, the definition of what you want to run there. You know, pull from the container registries to run these containers. Um, I want to run three copies at all times and multi-AZ or, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, if if one familiar, fails, start another one. Yeah, if you're not familiar with this terminology, the easiest way to think about a task definition is like one application. So in our case, we have two images to run one application, so our task definition would refer to two images. Once you have that uh, task definition, you create the service. And when you create the service, it basically says, all right, this app, which has these features of this much RAM and all these different constraints, um, I'm going to run. And in this service, I want to run three copies at all times and do all that other stuff. So you define the app, basically how it, what it needs to run. And you define what you want to run as far as in the service. And then it launches and manages that and keeps it up and running. And, you can specify how it stops them and starts them, how it load balances across them if there's multiple copies, uh, that kind of stuff. So let's take a look. If you notice in that diagram, also he had a highly available um, 
environment because he had uh, multiple services running in each cluster and he had a cluster in two different subnets, so in two different regions. Um, so it was a highly available environment. I don't know if you paid attention to the, the picture, but just wanted to call that out. So here I'm in the AWS um, console environment and I've gone to ECS. And the first thing you would do is create a cluster. And so when I create a cluster, I get to choose, do, am I doing uh, Linux uh, or Windows? I don't know, which one ever could we be doing? I think we're gonna choose Windows. You think? And then we give it a name. Um, we basically select our instance sizes that we're going to run. We select how many we're gonna run, the number of instances, um, and then the EBS storage key pairs if we want to remote into these instances. You can also use your own images. You don't have to use the pre-built image that we have. Um, and then you create a cluster. Now, I've already baked one because it does uh, take, take a, a little bit to, uh, to build. So if we look at my cluster, it's this Windows container cluster. I know, a unique name that I gave it. but. Uh, it's up and it's active, and I've got three servers running it, uh, running it. So basically three instances. If we look at the tab here, there's services, tasks, ECS instances, metrics, scheduled tasks, and tags. If I go into the ECS instances, that's gonna show my EC2 instances here. These servers, if I go into the EC2 section, are gonna be listed there as well. Um, they're the servers that I'm running on. And I've got three of them active, if we look Two of them are in AZA, and one of them is in AZB. So I do have it set up in a multi-AZ uh, environment, um, and it's ready to host the services. So the next thing I would do after I create the cluster is I would go create a task definition. And this task de definition, I've already created one called nerddinner-prod, because this is my production environment. I just want to say, like, if you're creating a task definition and you already wrote a Docker Compose file, it's pretty easy to just fill in the pieces from your Docker Compose file. Um, it's asking a lot of the same questions. So as I build this, <clears throat> excuse me, what it, what it basically wants me to do is select um, name and services it runs under, but the important part is this part right here, the container definitions. So I have two container definitions. I have the Nerd Dinner uh, DB production and the Nerd Dinner web production. And in these, uh, when I define them, what I basically am doing uh, is... You map the ports. Mapping, yep, mapping the ports and giving the ECR uh, the, the registry of where those images are that I'm gonna pull it from. Um, and so you configure it with that and, and how much RAM it's gonna use. So I've given these both 500 mega RAM. Uh, so they're looking for a giga RAM uh, to run the both of them. Uh, and they're gonna run them both on the same server uh, the way I have them configured. So. Basically, that's all I need to do is create that task. Once I have that task, I can go back to my cluster. And in my cluster, I go and I create a service. When you create a service, it basically takes your definition of a task. Um, and then it says what cluster you want to run on, because you might have more than one cluster. Um, and then you say how many of those tasks you want to run. Then you go into some health checks because it can restart stuff. You can go in what kind of deployment do I do? Do I do rolling updates or do I do other types of things? Blue-green deployment. And um, let's go back here. So what we have is we have our uh, service up and running. We see that we desire two tasks to be running. 
and we have two tasks up and running currently. Um, so with that, I know, ooh, ah, very cool stuff. So this is just a diagram that's really nice. It shows um, kind of how things are working. So you see Amazon ECR on one side because that's where our images are. And then Elastic Container Service is actually wrapping everything. So you're going to define your application. That's the task definition. And then you can choose to launch it on EC2 or Fargate. Um, so Fargate is actually commonly misconfused. It's confused as its own service. It's just a launch type inside ECS. So if I choose Fargate, I'm saying I would like to manage a lot less, which is my favorite thing in the whole world. And then from there, you can manage containers. And Fargate does only support Linux today. Soon to support Windows. Today. OK, so we touched on this in the beginning. Um, but again, uh, this is the easiest way to start modernizing your application and not have to do it in one, in one fell swoop. So if you lift and shift into Windows containers, you can then break apart pieces of your .NET Framework application. So you can say, like, oh, this is a reference API. All this does is load up the dropdowns. And then you can start rewriting that in .NET Core. And then your .NET Core container can speak to your Windows container. And so you can start breaking out pieces of it into .NET Core until you have the whole thing uh, broken out. So you can basically turn your application into microservices at that point and also uh, rewrite it in .NET Core at a slower pace than just, I'm going to rewrite the whole thing before I move to the cloud. This is a very interesting way that, that some consultants and things, it's on the internet, that they're rewriting these .NET apps without changing, you don't even need the source code to the host app, to the traditional uh, .NET app, right? It runs through a proxy, and that proxy then puts a new front end on the old set. And so you start doing the new code, and you can do that in .NET Core, uh, and modernize the app. No touching is required to the legacy app. Very cool to be able to, to build that. And then the other side of it was you don't even have to test, like, you know, uh, the aspect of, you know, did it change things because you're not regression changing Regression testing? Anything. Thank you. Regression testing. Yeah, one of those words that you dad Yeah, use. one of the That's words. That's what I was looking for. One of our vocabulary words. All right. So, yeah, this is the GitHub. You can replicate everything we did here in the directions file. In, it's a markdown file. should be right in the GitHub. And then this is our information. If you have questions, that's my Twitter. Um, I'm on Twitter all the time, so feel free to reach out. And if there's any questions, we do have microphones here. We do have just a Yeah, we have a, a minute, a minute left, seconds. so we might have to walk out and take questions outside. But, uh, but yeah, we can certainly answer questions if you want to talk to us at the end, too. When you start to um, break out microservices from your monolith, and you do that with .NET Core and Linux, can you do can you mix and match in your Docker Compose file and how um, that actually work? Yeah, well, you can have another container running Nginx as a proxy, and then they can communicate. Yeah, and as far as your Compose file, you're starting up containers. You could have containers start up oh, right. yes. uh, that are Linux containers that start up Linux yes. stuff. You can have Windows containers start. Yeah, so yes, you can combine that. All right, we got to get out of here. All right, yeah, thank you. Out. Thanks, guys. Oh, please fill out the survey. Um, hopefully you like it. Top scores. And I'll buy beers. So there's a lot of you here. But I'll buy beers if you see me tonight. Yeah, as long as I get crawl. top score. Thank you.